Hello, listeners. Speaking to you from Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood, I'm Will Ippen, producer at This Is Hell. As Chuck announced last week, we're taking a week off from new interviews while Chuck undergoes and recovers from wisdom tooth removal surgery. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a hell of a way to spend his birthday. Speaking of hell and birthdays, this week's question from hell is a timely one. If you could give Chuck anything for his birthday, what would it be? That's right, this week's question from hell is, if you could give Chuck anything for his birthday, what would it be? Our listeners on Patreon have been chiming in since the end of last week when the question from hell was dropped for Patreon subscribers. Let's see how they've been answering. It looks like uh, the Patreon subscribers have been have been busy with this one. Uh, thank you all for your support, as always. You help keep the lights on and the This Is Hell staff paid. Craig H. responds, Four fried chickens and a Coke, and maybe some dry white toast. <laughs> uh, Aaron D. responds, Nice fresh organs transplanted from Elon. Eyes, intestines, Anything you want or need. Skin? No problem. We can keep musk in a medically induced coma for years in case you have additional needs in the future. Or share his liver and kidneys with an underprivileged recipient. Note, heart is not available due to a medical anomaly and the anus is abnormally large. But the lungs are great. (laughs) Aaron D. Ken M. responds to the question from hell. If you could give Chuck anything for his birthday, what would it be? Enough Patreon members so that our gap-tooth host can now have teeth implants that put Joseph Robinette Biden's artificial smile to shame. Sorry, but once this happens, you'll have to change the This Is Hell tagline. Come on, people. Let's make this happen for Chuck. Adi replies, A big hug and a pot of cardamom tea? sure that would uh, go over well this week, given uh, the things he's undergoing in his mouth. Uh, Jeff Dorchin responds, membership to the U.S. Microbrewed Beer Club. 12 12-ounce handcrafted beers each month from two different lightly distributed U.S. microbreweries. Four different beer styles, three bottles of each style. On the off chance that he'd have something in addition to IPA in his fridge next time I visit. Also, a pound of good weed. Sounds like a good time as always, Jeffy. Be sure to invite me over for that. Uh, Nick E. replies, 1,780 votes. (laughs) Braden replies, an ounce. Uh, Vagabond Farmers reply in the last response I have in front of me. A winning lottery ticket. But I would miss you when you suddenly disappear from the air because you're a big part of my week. Happy birthday, Chuck. Well, thank you as always, Vegamon Farmers and all the rest of the Patreon patrons who answered this week's question from hell. We appreciate your support. Keep your answers to this week's question from hell coming uh, to any of our social media sites, which include Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and of course Patreon. You can also email your answers to the question from hell to our host, Chuck Mertz, at the address chuck at thisishell.com. As always, the winner of this week's question from hell can receive as a prize 
any of the fine merchandise available on our website, thisishell.com. We have a solid collection of interviews lined up for you this week while Chuck is away from uh, doing interviews. Today's episode features two interviews that I think will pair very well together. First up is Aya Gruber, professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. Aya joined Chuck back on uh, June 23, 2020, to discuss her then-published book from the University of College Press titled The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. And then following up that interview, we will turn to a 2016 interview uh, with Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University, Donna Murch, on her contribution to the multi-authored book from Verso titled False Choices, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Rodham Clinton. Without further delay, let's roll the interviews. This is Hell. Those who commit violent crimes against women should be locked up in jail and the keys should be thrown away. Okay, maybe not a life sentence, but any man who violently assaults a woman deserves jail time. Problem is, squaring that with support for the protests against police violence can be very, very complicated. Here to explain the how, what, and why of carceral feminism and a possible alternative. Law scholar Aya Gruber is author of The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Welcome to This is Hell, Aya. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Your, by the way, your phone connection sounds fantastic. Aya is professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's a former public defender. And you can follow Aya on Twitter at Aya Gruber. That's A-Y-A-G-R-U-B-E-R. You write that much of feminism's language, carceral feminism's language, presumes the gender binary male and female. Throughout your book, you generically refer to abusers and rapists as he and victims as she. This is not to signal that gender and sex are biologically determined that women cannot engage in violence and men cannot suffer it, or that same-sex violence is trivial. To the contrary, I hope this book will illuminate the dark side of feminism's tendency to adopt man versus woman as a given, characterize violence as a product of individual men, and account poorly for intersecting identities. But shouldn't feminism be adversarial? Doesn't it need to be in confrontation with men in order to challenge patriarchy? So I think there is something there about challenging patriarchy. So I'm not being so postmodern that I'm saying there's no sense to make out of, you know, the quote unquote female identity, whether biologically or socially constructed. Um, I, you know, I think there is an argument to be made that we invest too much in those identities and that can have negative consequences, but that's not really what I'm taking on in this book. Um, so I do actually accept the gender binary, and I do recognize feminism as a social justice movement that is particularly geared towards women and towards recognizing the ways in which women are oppressed in the state. Now, you asked whether, you know, feminism has to be adversarial against men. And it kind of, you know, is like asking whether people who believe in racial justice have to be adversarial against whites. Um, and I think there's a complicated answer to that. I definitely think that 
um, women, to the extent that they are subordinated by structures in society, should be adversarial to those structures, just like racial justice um, proponents are adversarial to white supremacy. But that doesn't necessarily translate into using the powers of the state, which, you know, feminists and some of the most radical feminists like Catherine McKinnon have recognized to be sort of masculine in its comportment. So I don't think being adversarial to patriarchy translates into using the penal power of the state against individual men. Um, those I wouldn't characterize as the same thing. You also write that millennial feminism exists, as I once did, in an uncomfortable equilibrium of distaste for gender crimes and punishments. On one side of the scale is a Black Lives Matter-informed belief that policing, prosecution, and incarceration are racist, unjust, and too widespread. The side abhors the practice of putting human bodies in cages. On the other is a Me Too-informed preoccupation with men's out-of-control sexuality and abusive power. This side wants to get tough. To what degree, then, are current campaigns against racial injustice and those involving feminism at odds with each other. Are they in conflict? So it's really interesting because what inspired this book and, and 20 years of research on the topic was this sense of a feminist, you know, defense attorney or civil libertarian dilemma that I was feeling when I was a law student. So I knew I wanted to be a public defender and represent marginalized people against the awesome carceral power of the state, but I always had this nagging dread of defending batterers and rapists. And the reason I had this dread was because it was so ingrained in my head that prosecution of crime was this key to women's liberation. And it, it was just always in the ether, and I'm not sure you know where it came from. And I think a lot of the younger feminists of the past few years are kind of realizing this dilemma. They go to a Black Lives Matter protest on day one. On day two, they raise a mattress in protest of sexual assault and call for zero tolerance. And, you know, how do you square those things? Well, for me, the dilemma cleared up pretty quickly when I started practicing in a specialized domestic violence court that was built by feminists, right? This was supposed to be enlightened criminal law. And what I saw was day after day, the poorest among us, the most marginalized people of color were in a revolving door of incarceration that didn't serve victims very well. I had victims calling me and saying, look, I want some intervention in an abusive relationship, but I don't necessarily want him to go to jail for an extended period of time or my children to lose their father or my you know, spouse to be deported. Um, and I saw prosecutors proceed with cases against women's wishes. Judges refused to lift stay away orders. And I saw quite a few of the women who called the police for help ending up getting arrested for domestic violence themselves or for other crimes. So even just after practicing for a few months, I realized that this automatic connection I had made between gender justice and prosecution was just wrong. We can recognize that gender uh, crimes are a pressing issue, but it doesn't necessarily mean that 
prosecution, policing, and punishment within the American penal state is making things better, not worse. And, I, you know, and it was just kind of like the rose-colored glasses came off, and I thought to myself, why for so many years have I made this assumption? And so I started looking into that in, in the book, and I think that there are a variety of factors why feminists and others have been so sanguine about criminal law when it's been this, you know, terribly costly social experiment for too many years. You said it doesn't serve people of color well, and it seems that this carceral feminism, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this carceral, carceral uh, feminism was driven by white middle-class feminism. So if this process doesn't serve poor people of color well, does this process serve middle-class women well? Is, is the reason that this process continues in the way it does, in this punitive nature, because it does work for middle-class whites? There is definitely um, something to that. I will say that you see throughout history a lot of internal divisions within gender justice movements, and I'm talking about from the very beginning of feminism in the late 19th century. You see suffragists and temperance advocates, largely white, middle and upper class Northern women, squaring off with um, anti-lynching activists in the South and racial justice advocates in the South. And you see time and time again, the more mainstream and whiter brands of feminism winning out. Um, you see it in the 19th century. You see it in the late 20th century when you have the second wave of feminism and the domestic violence reform movement. You see feminists of color saying, well, wait a second. We don't think investing all our capital in lawsuits that are compelling police to be more active in people's homes and make more arrests, we don't think as women of color who have seen what the police can do to our neighborhoods, we don't think that that's the right way to go. And, and again, you see them lose out time and time again. So there is a racial story there, but I will say this, some of the carceral aspects of feminist law reform cross party lines, uh, or, I'm sorry, cross racial lines. There were certainly a number of white feminists who were also skeptical of the alliance with the police and prosecutors and were very conflicted about it. There were some, not many, women of color who were uh, with the carceral program. So it's not just a story of race, but race had a ton to do with it. I'll give you an example. After the domestic violence arrest program really took off and it was due to extreme activism on the part of feminists, very successful activism, where they convinced legislatures to adopt these pro-domestic violence arrest policies. And they also filed successful lawsuits that compelled the police to arrest, which interestingly, not only got rid of police's me mediation policies for domestic violence assaults, but also for all assaults. So it kind of stopped alternate dispute resolution within the uh, police back in the 70s. Um, but after these successful lawsuits, there started to be these sociological studies that 
uh, really looked at the efficacy uh, in terms of deterrence. And early studies found that maybe arrest was deterrent. But soon after the early studies, large-scale policing experiments found that actually inserting an arrest into the life of these couples uh, that were, you know, uh, violent couples, right, where the man was perpetrating violence, could actually escalate the violence. And it escalated the violence in a racially disparate way. Middle-class white women actually uh, stood to benefit from mandatory arrest. Um, Why? Well, I mean, there are a lot of theories of why, but number one, the, the man was more amenable to the deterrent effect of arrest because he was a middle-class man with a job. He saw that, you know, policing wasn't in his future. Any sort of level of the pain of policing maybe got him to change. But that could be the answer. Um, but the answer that a lot of experts pointed to was uh, middle-class women, white women, they don't have the same incentives to, uh, to leave abusers as poor women might have. So in other words, if you gave poor women money, if you gave them a better set of services, you could create the conditions where they could leave an abuser. And the same wouldn't work for middle-class white women because first of all, they didn't wanna be seen as welfare recipients and they didn't wanna be sort of categorized with uh, poor women of color. And they didn't want to give up their um, their lifestyle. So the thought was, well, if you interject an arrest into their lives, it's kind of the wake up call. Then they'll leave their husband and they'll be able to get their money um, through child support and alimony. So it is a model that works for white women. And in fact, the study showed that, you know, amongst white middle class men, arrest did have a deterrent factor. However, in poor communities with high levels of unemployment, and more specifically, poor black communities with high levels of unemployment, um, arrests tended to have a very escalatory effect where it it doubled over time the chances of there being a domestic arrest. So the dynamics were really different between the white woman model and the poor woman of color model. But white feminists insisted over and over again that there was no difference in domestic violence between somebody living in a mansion and somebody living on public assistance. And we had to treat it as a problem of patriarchy. And the way you treat it as a problem of patriarchy is jailing men. And it turned out to be a disaster for many women of color. I mean, even the thought that there's no difference between living in a mansion and living in public houses is absolutely ridiculous because women of color who stayed with their abusers and and the abusers then got a conviction could actually lose eligibility for public housing. So it was just a completely different dynamic. But the racial and economically empowered feminists vision of justice did take over. So I have a couple of follow-up questions to that. And by the way, I just want to tell you, I, I think I wrote 65 questions for this interview. I've got to two of them so far because I keep having follow-up questions with everything that you're saying. Uh, so what explains those class blinders? And what does it say to you about feminism? And, and let's just ask that first. So what explains those class blinders? And what does that say to you about that era of feminism, of carceral feminism, when they seem to have no sense of the impact that this would have on poor people of color. 
Well, I think it's, you know, and, and not being an expert on social movements in general, it seems to me that it would be something that every powerful social movement would have to grapple with. That is sort of the insider-outsider status. So the way you make change is having some power as a leader of a social movement. And often those who rise to the top are those who have, uh, you know, certain aspects of them that allow them to be empowered. So, you know, if you are just trying to survive, it's probably harder for you to be at the helm of a political movement, writing, you know, being on the radio, you know, I could look at my own privilege here, although I'm, I'm definitely not a social movement leader by any, by any stretch of the imagination. So I think there's that. I think there was something very perspectival too. So interestingly, and this happens with a lot of uh, movements that deal with criminal law reform, we had women victims that were very present in a lot of these movements, especially the battered women's movement. A lot of the victims advocates had been um, abused themselves and quite terribly abused. And they had a certain perspective about how abuse went on. And if they happened to be um, a middle-class woman who was hiding her abuse from her friends and family uh, because she was terribly embarrassed by it and it kind of wrecked this, you know, view that people might have had of her perfect life. Well, she has a certain perspective of how that abuse might have been stopped. So you can't blame people for having their own perspective. And that's one of the challenges of a social movement being based so deeply in lived experience. At the same time, as you look to your lived experience, you have to also understand, you know, that you're subject to axes of subordination, but also axes of privilege. And trying to look beyond that, I think, was was very difficult, especially because there was something extremely pressing and extremely real in domestic violence victims' feelings of subordination. They had been horribly abused, and this abuse had a lot to do with women's oppression. So you can kind of understand why they were locked in that battle, and it was hard to hear the voices of other women and maybe women who were more marginalized than them saying, hey, let's do something different. So how much is the issue then an expansion of victims' rights? We recently had a guest on the show who was talking about the problems with the expansion of victims' rights when it comes to capital punishment and what an impact that can have on the decision of getting life in prison or getting a death sentence. So to what degree has the expansion of victims' rights had an impact? To what degree did that have an impact on the advancement of carceral feminism? So... In chapter four of my book, I actually devote a chapter to the relationship between victims' rights and um, feminist criminal law reform because, uh, you know, I characterize it as a symbiotic and mutually constitutive relationship. If you look up the National uh, Victims' Rights website, right, the national organization, it says in the history of victims' rights that feminism and women's rights was the inspiration for the victims' rights movement. They borrowed heavily from this idea that the criminal justice system should specifically be responsive to victims' needs and wants. Now, in the beginning, I think both 
feminism and I'm, you know, I'm thinking of second wave feminism and the anti-rape and anti-domestic violence movement and the victims rights movement, which had a lot to do with parents of um, children, uh, you know, adult children mostly who had been killed. Both of these movements envisioned that their intervention in the criminal justice system would be protecting victims from a system that was very unforgiving to them, that didn't notify them, that just, you know, treated them like an expendable witness, that didn't listen to them, that didn't take their desires into account. So really, when you look at the origin of the victims' rights movement, it was really about protecting victims from the mistreatment of police and prosecutors. But much like a lot of feminist criminal law reform, the victims' rights movement was born into a time in the United States where there was an increasing political tough-on-crime agenda. And very soon, you see you know, what victims want as not so much protection from prosecutors, but reversing Warren Court civil rights era uh, defendants' rights. So then the victims' movement comes... Uh, you know, the manifestation of the victims' rights movement and to an extent feminist criminal law reform movement become really about, you know, arresting more people, swiftly prosecuting them, not letting the defendants rely on quote unquote technicalities, which are their constitutional rights, and ensuring that they get long sentences and ensuring that the victims get their say in the form of, um, you know, sort of emotion evoking impact statements. So even though neither of these movements really started out being about putting more people in jail for a longer amount of time with fewer constitutional protections, they pretty quickly became about that. And, you know, borrowing from feminist activism, victims' rights movement and the politicians, right, the, the tough-on-crime politicians who were increasingly aligned with them, realized that publicizing vulnerable women or children subjected to crimes that invoke disgust, which are gender-based crimes, sexual-based crimes, was a really good way to whip up support for these tough-on-crime measures that would make them politically popular. So what you often had was sort of this perfect victim, right? Uh, this, um, you know, middle-class white woman subjected to horrific abuse where the man, you know, had just no excuse and he was monstrous, pitted against deviance. And often in the movies, you know, um, unidentified, exchangeable, scary minority thugs. So those were the images that were going around at the time, and they were very gendered images. So, you know, the feminist criminal law reform movements and the victims' rights movements uh, really did move along parallel tracks, and they were very related. You mentioned patriarchy and carceral feminism's focus on patriarchy. We have had guests on the show, and I've seen writing by a lot of analysts and critics who argue that if the focus is only, for instance, in the protests against police violence, if the focus is only on racism, 
overcoming racism is something that's incredibly hard to, if not impossible, to achieve. It's an individual act in certain circumstances. It can be institutional and systemic, of course, but it's an, also an individual act. And therefore, people want to, you know, they focus on the individual act instead of the systemic or institutional problem. Therefore, if you are only focusing on racism, it can be a distraction from the other things that can get done, from the other issues, whether it's imperialism, settler colonialism, capitalism, whatever the issue is. How might carceral feminism's focus on patriarchy potentially distract them from issues that poor people of color might be facing? So... I think there's a way to be a feminist where it's not either or, but you see that the ravages of late stage capitalism actually don't distribute evenly, but they fall disproportionately on the shoulder of single mothers, working women, poor women, and women of color. So if women are bearing the brunt of many inequalities in society, why would we then embrace a neoliberal criminal system that was the political mouthpiece of why uh, we needed no governance in any other place, no social safety net, that this was the solution to any social problem, criminal law. Why would we engage with that system that is so destructive to women in other ways for the very meager prize of seeing individual men and again, mostly the most marginalized men among us, disproportionately African-American and Latino men, locked up in jail. Why would that be a prize that is worth sacrificing so many's, so many women's interests otherwise? So I don't even think that, you know, if one were to do a distributional analysis, even focusing strictly on patriarchy, strictly on women, right? Women, gender binary, we're going to focus right on them. I don't think if you did a really thorough and thoughtful distributive analysis, you would come up with, hey, let's invest like a ton of money in arresting, prosecuting and jailing individual poor men. You just wouldn't come up with that, which is why I tried so hard to tell the story of how this thing we now call carceral feminism came about. It wasn't just feminists saying, OK, like we really think this is the best way to dismantle the patriarchy. It was a confluence of factors that have been ingrained for so long. This idea that there is massive criminal law impunity towards men, and this is the key to reversing gender hierarchy. That has been such a concept of faith among women for so long and for so many reasons that I thought it was really important to expose it. So, and, and let me say one thing about um, the current defunding protests, which I think are in many ways rightly grounded in racial identity. Um, I, you know, I, I think we have ample evidence out there and it's just the, the level of education on racial injustice has exploded over the past three weeks and that's an amazing thing. So I think there is ample evidence out there that policing, prosecution, imprisonment is a deeply racist, institutionally racist, historically racist phenomenon. Um, but 
it is certainly not only a racist phenomenon. When you look at the history of policing in, for example, union busting and protecting private property in managing undesirables in the form of vice police. So there is such a story to policing imprisonment and punishment that yes, is deeply racialized, but also goes beyond that. Even in the present day, police disproportionately harass, maim, and kill African-Americans, but they also harass, maim, and kill plenty of whites, and again, the most marginalized whites among us. So I think the reason that um, you know the racial story has so much traction is we have seen a real and um, obvious regression of racial equality, not just in the Trump administration, but since really the 1960s, 1970s. That is just obvious and horrific. Um, but at the same time, I think that it is easier for many people to package their complex structural claims and justice claims in the form of identity claims. Um, it's easier for people to get a hold of racism, sexism, you know, bad men, bad white people than it is to sort of look at all the moving parts, which is very complicated. You know, it, it's too complicated for Twitter. It's very hard to tweet out. So I think that's just a fact of the world we're in right now that identity claims um, seem to take precedence. But I think we also have to be careful about just dismissing identity claims as, oh, you're just, you know, you're just playing the race card or you're just playing the gender card. Because I think people are using identity claims as a placeholder for really complex analyses of these structures um, that have produced this this absurd level of inequality in our society. We've talked to James Foreman Jr. about this. We've talked to Cedric Johnson about this, about how black politics are not a monolithic thing. They're not a shared thing. You write about how there is no one feminism that's not a well, feminism is a monolithic politics either. So is the divide within feminism uh, the same divide that we're seeing in all politics right now, and that's from viewing uh, the the welfare state as the safety net or the carceral state as a security blanket. Is that the same divide that we're seeing everywhere throughout politics, including within feminism? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, James Foreman Jr. was actually my training director when I was a public defender, so we go <laughs> way back. And I and I, and I absolutely love locking up our own. I think it's a, a fantastic book. Yeah, and a careful book, right? Um, it is a book that wants to go beyond the black-white binary, the male-female binary. That you know, there are good and bad. Players, and if we could just identify the good players, then we've solved the problem. Um, and and I think you know it's fair to say that most activists, most people who are deeply concerned about these injustices, they want to go past that binary, right? Like that binary may be, um, as I just said, pumped up because social media doesn't permit dissertations on these issues. But absolutely, there have always been internal and external contestations within all these social justice movements from the very beginning. I mean, if you just look at the birth of second wave feminism, which was probably the most powerful and generative feminist movement, roughly beginning in the early 70s and lasting through the 90s, um, you know, feminists ranged from liberals who really wanted equal rights and the rights to work 
to lesbian separatists who wanted to upend uh, this idea of marriage and gender binaries and question identity to uh, black feminists who were anti-poverty activists. And they had very, very different agendas. Just like you saw a stark difference between, for example, the Black Panthers and the NAACP, right? So the, there were always internal contestations and very, very different views of justice. And there were overlaps, right? They all look like Venn diagrams. But one thing I did notice in my book was that despite all the complexity, all the contested notions of justice and identity and how law works and whether law is a savior and whether we operate inside or outside systems. One thing I saw over and over with feminist activism is that some of the most powerful groups continually returned to criminal law and that criminal law shored up their power as their participation in criminal law shored up the power of the carceral system. And it was really this symbiotic relationship and it happened over hundreds of years. So I do think despite all the internal contestation and the different branches and the ways that many feminists just didn't even touch criminal law, there is a story to be told about this continual choice to engage with criminal law and how that series of choices over decades both shaped modern feminism and shaped the modern criminal justice system. So that's really the, the story I'm telling. And, and that story isn't to say that that's all feminists did or feminists are the only cause of the carceral state. That would just be ridiculous. But it is to say that there is a connection that was meaningful and important um, to both these institutions. We are speaking with law scholar Aya Gruber, author of The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation and Mass Incarceration. You can follow Aya on Twitter at Aya Gruber. You write how rape law and policy enabled a lynching epidemic in the post-Civil War South. And you touched on lynching earlier in our conversation. This race-rape connection persists. Candidate Donald Trump launched his campaign with racialized rape fear-mongering, declaring that Mexican immigrants were rapists and promising to protect American women with a wall. Later, he justified his administration's horrific treatment of asylum seekers as deterrence of migrant caravans where women were raped at levels that nobody has ever seen before, according to Trump. Zero tolerance necessarily occurs against the backdrop of rape laws, racist past and present. Is the threat of rape a racist dog whistle? And what happens to our thinking on rape when it does become covert political code enforcing something else, in this case, racism? It is a very important thing to keep in mind whenever you engage in dialogue about zero tolerance for rape, um, that rape has a long really endemically racialized history in the United States. The foremost expert on the history of rape law is Estelle Friedman. And she said that, you know, conceptions of rape cannot be separated from the post-Civil War South. It just cannot. So I think that's really important because even back in Reconstruction era rape reform, and what people don't seem to realize is one of the most uh, 
successful rape reform campaigns that feminists ever launched occurred in the 1880s when uh, temperance activists went on this wildly successful campaign of raging, raising the age of consent to 17 and 18. It was, you know, around 10 at the time and basically outlawing teenage sex. Um, now they did it for feminist reasons because you had a lot of young girls being preyed on by seducers and rapists, but also for moral reasons. They figured that underage sex was something that led to licentiousness and prostitution, and those were uh, two no-nos within the temperance movement. So this was both a feminist movement and in ways a moralistic movement. Um, but one amazing thing happened was that the champion of this movement, which was this sort of iconic leader of the temperance union, Francis Willard, got into a really famous dispute with Ida B. Wells over this rape reform program. Ida Wells, they both happened to be touring Britain, right? Ida Wells on behalf of the anti-lynching movement and um, Francis Willard on behalf of temperance. And they were trying to, you know, convince the good liberals in the, in the tea rooms in, in Britain to support their, their agendas. Well, Ida Wells accused Francis Willard of racism and not just racism, but inciting lynch mobs in the South with her rhetoric about racists, uh, rapists, sorry, with her rhetoric about rapists that she was using to, you know, push for these age of consent programs. Um, and so she tried to get the British aristocracy to call out Francis Willard. In turn, Francis Willard accused Ida Wells of being anti-woman because Ida Wells was claiming that the women who were accusing black men of rape in the South were liars and calling women liars was a misogynistic thing to do. So we see this debate, right? This clash play out 120 years ago, right? Over 120 years ago. And it seems to continue today where we have this sense that the way to be feminist and the way to um, you know, be good on issues of gender violence is hashtag believe all women, you know, hashtag zero tolerance for rape and me too. But at the same time, the specter of the rape, especially of white women, has long been used to accrue carceral power to the state and as a tool of racial domination. It's like the perfect combination of gender stereotyping and racist fear-mongering and sex panic, right? It, it, it always had that tendency. So I think, you know, one of the messages I have to, you know, a group I'm calling millennial feminists, but I really mean just young activists and young feminists is it is fine to counter violence against women. But even outside of the carceral state, if we look at sort of Title IX and the campus rape panic, if you are invoking the language of monstrous predatory rapists and thinking that that is just feminist language 
that doesn't have bag baggage, you're wrong. It necessarily has baggage and it necessarily operates within a certain history and in a certain structure. And we see it operating right now. One of the most popular, you know, sort of gotcha questions to the defunding police, quote, uh, defunding slash police abolition movement is what about rapists, right? So if you don't have police, what about rapists? Um, and, you know, a lot of the policing abolitionists are coming back with, well, you know, police are rapists themselves and they don't really solve rapes anyway. You know, that, that, is, that is, you know, a perfectly fine answer. But I, but I think that the person asking the what about rapist question can just say, well, then we need more and better policing in this space. And that's kind of what feminists have always said. Well, yeah, if police are bad, we need more and better policing in that space. And, and so my response to the what about rapist question isn't just like in its current iteration, policing is bad at dealing with gender crime. It, I, I guess it's more of a structural Foucauldian and historical response. Policing as an institution is not meant to bring gender justice. It will not do it. The, the policing carceral concepts of monstrous men who need to be jailed necessarily comes within a structure with all this baggage and it is not well used to serve women's interests. And, and so I think that, you know, women could say, you know, campus sexual assault is a horrible thing, but they still have to be careful about the way they go about characterizing it and the solutions they propose because they can invoke this very long and very deliberate history of racial and other subordination. I want to make sure that listeners understand that in the conclusion of your book, you also offer an alternative. You offer the alternative of neo-feminism. Is neo-feminism, and I'm sure this is far way too oversimplification of it. Is neo-feminism a focus off of the individual actors and actions and a shift to the system that created these actors and actions? Is neo-feminism essentially a challenge to the impact that neoliberalism has had on feminism? Yes, I do think that neo-feminism is definitely um, a move away from how the mutually constitutive relationship between feminism and incarceration uh, has made feminism more carceral and more like that system, uh, more like a system where you believe that invoking this program of putting individual bad actors in jail is the key to gender justice. So in that sense, it's definitely a step back from that neoliberal criminal system. So I think the methodology of neo-feminism is very simple and it comes from, you know, post-structuralist critical legal theory, thinking about trying to do distributional analyses of programs. So instead of imagining that law works in a linear fashion, any law, not just criminal law, that if you have a goal in mind, right, your goal is to end rape, and you have a law that says, um, you know, if you rape, you'll get sued or go to jail, that, you know, because the law was created in the name of ending rape, it actually will have that effect. I think whenever you insert law into, into the world, you have a real responsibility to look at the world as it is 
and try to do in good faith a careful prediction of how the power flows in society will be disrupted by inserting law into it and who's going to benefit and gain from that. And so that's very different than saying, I've got a problem in mind. I'm going to insert some law there and I'm just going to presume that it solves the problem. So neo-feminism is feminist in the sense that I say, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to have your agenda be woman-centric, right, to be gendered. You can say there is this category of people called women who suffer a unique form of discrimination, and, and me, as an activist, I'm concerned with that discrimination. I think that's perfectly fine. But when you are figuring what to do about it, um, A, I, you know, really would counsel caution if what you immediately jump to is sort of punishing bad individual apples. And two, even if you're doing structural changes, you have a real accountability to look at how those reforms are going to operate in a in the real world. And our real world is one of extreme inequality, racialized mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the neo-feminist methodology. Um, and then I sort of point to some things I think are sort of in the neo-feminist vein, which are, you know, activists who are looking at like different ways of, of uh, sending kids messages about sexuality um, that, you know, maybe are more enlightened and can reduce the fear and the social stigma that lead to miscommunication in a lot of these campus rape incidents. Um, I look to Insight, which is a movement uh, amongst prison abolitionist feminists to address violence against women without necessarily engaging the prison industrial complex. And I point to some other things. So really what I'm asking feminists to do is not to abandon or take a break from feminism, but to really um, look at different ways of getting at the problem of violence against women that don't tap into a very long and problematic history of criminalization and really in in the in all earnestness right like the best way you can try to be accountable to the costs of your legal program that's that's the best we can ask people to do if they are going to be law reformers they're going to be in the media promoting programs the best we can ask them to do is to be accountable to the costs of those programs. Um, and, I, and I think one of the big problems with feminist activism is, you know, you identify a problem, right? So the problem is violence against women. You describe it in the most spectacular terms, right? In, in order to drum up political support. So, the, so you describe victimhood in spectacular terms. You describe the crime in spectacular terms. You describe the perpetrators in spectacular terms. Um, and, you know, these are definitely inherently racialized, inherently classed. So you describe these crimes against women in spectacular terms. And then you spend a lot of time on that description. You spend way less time on figuring out how this law reform, which is inevitably some form of 
discipline of the man or punishment or way to get money from the man, um, you spend a lot less time being accountable to all the ways that that law might distribute equities differently and just assume that, oh, I told you about this spectacular crime. This law will be the solution to that. So you should support it. I, I think that's the way the politic is gone. And I think that's why we see that criminal law has become a preferred method of achieving gender justice in many circles. And yesterday we were talking to sociologist Musa Algarbi, and he was saying the same thing about spectacular. Uh, the spectacular reporting of crime leads to over-policing. This, always focusing on the spectacle and the most brutal of crimes uh, often leads to over-policing. And I just want to point out real quick that uh, you also write that I propose the following as a basic tenet of modern feminist thought. Criminal law is a last, not first resort. And I would just suggest that maybe that should be something that everybody should be considering at all times. I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with law scholar Aya Gruber, author of The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation and Mass Incarceration. You can follow Aya on Twitter, at Aya Gruber. Aya, what we do with uh, for all of our guests is we have our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, there were dissenting voices expressing alarm at feminism's carceral drift, but they were muted out by muted by law and order messages from within and outside feminism. By the close of the millennium, the stalwart suit-wearing SVU prosecutor who throws the book at rapists had replaced the bra burner as the symbol of women's empowerment. Which leads me to the very obvious question, Aya, is carceral feminism all Hillary Clinton's fault? Well, I was actually thinking of... Um Oh, what's her last name? Olivia from Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia Munn. Yeah, no, no, it's not. Uh, what is that? Uh, oh, anyway, I anyway, was yeah, yeah. Of the, uh, yeah. I'm glad that we don't know her. I'm glad that we don't know her name. That's a really good sign. Right. So, so it's interesting because um, there is not a uh, a neat left right political divide on this, and I think you know people have been realizing this for many many years. It's why. Clinton in 2005, Bill Clinton in 2015 went in front of the NAACP and, and just simply admitted about the Clinton crime bill, the 1994 crime bill. We were wrong, right? It, it was a very deliberate program that insiders at the time called the Biden-Schumer strategy to wrest the popular crime control issue from the Republicans. This was a democratic strategy. Um, and VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, was a really important part of that crime control political strategy. In fact, Bill Clinton called VAWA a, quote, brilliant part of the crime control bill. So, yeah, I mean, there is there is democratic blame here to go around. I mean, the politics of tough on crime was not just a Republican thing. And the politics of feminism in tough on crime made it even more complicated because when you look at a situation like, for example, Bernie Sanders, he was extremely opposed to the 1994 Clinton-Biden crime bill and this idea of putting 100,000 more cops on the street and taking money out of federal programs so you could build jail cells. And he said, we can't, you know, and I'm making... 
over 60 new death penalty offenses. You know, Bernie said, we cannot incarcerate our way out of problems. But the ban on assault weapons and VAWA and the Inclusion of Violence Against Women Act moved Bernie to vote for the Clinton crime bill, three strikes and all, right? And he did it in the name of protecting women. So these were very complicated issues and it's easy to sort of Monday morning quarterback them. But, you know, the Democratic Party, after the Willie Horton ad, the very racist Willie Horton ad and Dukakis's utter defeat, was afraid of the, quote, Hortonizing of the entire Democratic Party and that they would just completely lose. And so this was their strategy. And so, yeah, a lot of our mass incarceration problems can be laid at, you know, Hillary, I don't I don't know how much influence she had on it sort of back then or on the VAWA part of it, but it can definitely be laid at Democrats and Bill Clinton and Joe Biden's feet. That is just the reality of the situation. Um, you know, but again, it's easy to sort of from the place I'm sitting say, you know, I would have never done that. I would never spectacularize thing, but it's human nature. I mean, if you look at the Black Lives Matter defund policing movement, we are also relying on spectacular police killings. I mean, it's, it's true that these killings are horrific. Uh, but police killings in the larger scheme of policing still are pretty rare. I mean, they're horrific, but rare. And where a lot of the pathology comes is from everyday stop and frisk, everyday surveillance, everyday interactions with people in poor neighborhoods where the police exercise um, oppressive authority. And it's in these everyday oppressions that we see the sort of scale of the inequality, the invisible inequality. And so I think we have to keep our eye on that too, but I just think it's human nature to be moved emotionally by the spectacular. So, you know, I, I you know, Democrats did it. They spectacularized crime. They, they, got the crime issue. They wrestled it away from the Republicans. Feminists did it too. They spectacularized crime. They um, had their reforms ascend in an era where crime rates were going down, but incarceration rates were exponentially increasing. And it, it, and it was political and we're left with the fallout from it. But, you know, one can hope we're not stuck in hell and times are changing and People are understanding that we have to look at these things in a really complex manner and we have to work really hard to undo the just massive amounts of inequality and despair that we see around us. Right. Not just not focusing on only the spectacular and and not being distracted by the spectacular from the problems of everyday policing. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fantastic book, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation and Mass Incarceration. I is professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's a former public defender, and you can follow her on Twitter at Aya Gruber. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. 
For more interview health and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. This is hell. Black lives didn't seem to matter to Bill and Hillary Clinton back in the mid-1990s during Bill's presidency. In fact, it could be argued that the Black Lives Matter movement is a reaction to the policies that the Clinton administration put in place. Here to tell us about all this forgotten history and how we forgot it, historian Donna Murch is the author of the essay, The Clinton's War on Drugs, Why Black Lives Didn't Matter, which can be found in False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton, edited by Liza Featherstone, who appeared on the this is Hell earlier this year. Welcome to This is Hell, Donna. Hello, it's my pleasure to be here. Donna is an associate professor of history at Rutgers and the author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party. So you write that in August 2015, an uncomfortable encounter uh, between Black Lives Matter protesters and Hillary Clinton finally broke the silence of many mainstream outlets on the Clinton's shared responsibility for the disastrous policies of mass incarceration and its catalyst, the war on drugs. Although a number of prime Prominent academics have written on the subject. Little popular discussion of the racial impact of the Clinton's crime and punishment policies emerged until the opening volleys of the 2016 presidential race. To you, what explains that lack of discussion on the racial impact of uh, the Clinton crime and punishment policies? Because uh, we hear over and over again, and pollsters uh, say the numbers back this up, that uh, African-Americans uh, voters are heavily favoring. Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. So to what degree did this lack of discussion on the racial impact of Clinton crime and punishment policies fuel African-American voter support for Hillary? Well, you know, I think that there are multiple things happening at once. Uh, The first, I would say, is just true of the United States in general and its political culture, which is very much always centered on personalities of the present. So I think that in general in the U.S., there's a problem with historical memory. Um, Gore Vidal talked about the United States as the United States of amnesia. And I think that we have a real problem in placing history in our political context to figure out what kinds of decisions we make in the present moment. And I think that's true in talking about African-Americans' relationship to Clinton, but I think that's more broadly of many different policy issues. Um, I think that there are multiple things going on. The first that I describe, which is this problem of historical amnesia. The second has to do with the disjuncture between the public perceptions of Clinton's and then the concrete history of what actually happened under Bill Clinton's presidency. And first, I wanted to say that um, one of the reasons I wrote the Clinton's War on Drugs and treated them as a team is because in many ways, the First Lady, Hillary Clinton, uh, First Lady of the 1990s, Congresswoman of the early 2000s, and now presidential candidate and Secretary of State, um, 2012, um, she was... um, very intimately involved in all different aspects of policymaking. And she she actually campaigned both for the crime bill and for welfare reform in 1996. So I think one of the things that's been left out of public discussion is that it's actually under the Clinton presidency from 1992 to 2000 that we see the largest increase in state and federal prisoners. So the total prison population in the United States increases by 600,000 people. And you have the passage of the crime bill in 1994 and then an anti-terrorism provision in 1996 that really um, led to the federalization of the war on gangs and a vast expansion of the numbers of um, criminal uh, 
categories included in the federal death penalty and in life imprisonment. Donna, you quote Donasia Yancey forcefully uh, confronting Hillary Clinton about her shared culpability in America's destructive war on drugs. You quote Donasia saying in the video, saying to Hillary, you and your family have been personally and politically responsible for policies that have caused health and human services disasters in impoverished communities of color through the domestic and international war on drugs that you championed as First Lady Senator and Secretary of State. And so I just want to know how you feel about your role in the violence and how you plan to reverse it. Now, back in March, we spoke with Ashley Williams, an organizer in Charlotte, North Carolina, who made headlines around the world when prior to the South Carolina uh, primary, Ashley confronted Hillary Clinton on her 1996 statement about young at-risk super predators who Hillary believed we have to bring them to heel. To what degree have you seen any shift in Hillary Clinton's crime and punishment policies since she has been confronted now at least twice on the impact those policies have had on African-Americans? Well, you know, both uh, Hillary Clinton and her husband, Bill Clinton, um, over the past year initially made several apologies uh, for their involvement and the expansion of the war on drugs, war on crime, and war on gangs. These are really overlapping punishment campaigns that, um, we're only limited to the war on drugs, but much, we're much more much broader than that. But um, Clinton uh, gave a speech in Harlem in which she talked about uh, the importance of race to people's lives and really talked about some of the issues of the political economy of race. So she, I think, publicly, given the amount of support that she received from African Americans, has reached out. Uh, she's also been supported by many of the mothers who have lost children uh, that have been killed by the police. So I think that there's been an active strategy of courting very publicly African-Americans, particularly prominent African-Americans, uh, including Trayvon Martin's mother and others. Um, so I think that she's been able to construct through public relations um, uh, really uh, infrastructure of black women around her that make it appear as if she is, um, is a better candidate on race and on criminal justice issues. However, I think if you really look at the substance of Clinton's proposals, they are relatively narrow. Uh, one of the things that was really striking when she talked to Yancey uh, back in August was that she essentially uh, very quickly became uh, frustrated and told the Black Lives Matter activists that it was their job to come up with, with policy prescriptions, not simply to protest. So I think that uh, her husband this spring, as we all remember, came out and essentially talked about uh, people who were opposing the war on drugs were actually supporting violence against other black people, that it was, what was it, 12 or 13-year-olds popped up on crack being sent out to kill other black people is what essentially they were fighting. So you see the Clintons going back and forth. Um, Bill Clinton, as acting really as part of Hillary Clinton's campaign, came out and said this. So I would say that um, Clinton's program has been inconsistent. And I think it's very important when you talk about the war on drugs to link it to other forms of social policy. One of the things that was so striking about the way that Yancey phrased her criticism of the Clintons was asking her to take, quote unquote, her and her family personal responsibility. Because, of course, it was the Clintons Welfare Reform Act of 1996 that took away federal welfare as we know it and put precisely the kinds of people that are in the most economic jeopardy um, in the hairs of the criminal justice system. 80, the estimates by the 
uh, Brennan Center are that 80 to 90 percent of people charged with criminal offenses are indigent. So there is, of course, a relationship between economic policy and between criminal justice policy. And I think on both fronts, uh, Hillary Clinton is much wanted. And to follow up on that, you write that, indeed, Bill Clinton titled his notorious welfare-to-work legislation the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996. Now, guests on our show have been pointing out for years that politicians and pundits consistently blame individuals for their lot in life without ever analyzing or reexamining the bigger system within these uh, individuals operate. Uh, how unwilling are the Clintons to critique the larger system of our capitalist democracy? And to you, what explains this lack of willingness to do so? Well, I think that the Clintons' unwillingness to really um, uh, embrace redistributive policy reflects their origins. Uh, one of the major threads in my article is looking at Bill Clinton's relationship to the Democratic Leadership Council uh, that emerged in the 1980s. So in 1984, you had this overwhelming defeat of the Democratic Party by Ronald Reagan, and it was considered one of the big crises in the Democratic Party in the 20th century. So Ronald Reagan won 49 states uh, out of 50, and the only one he lost was Walter Mondale's home state of Minnesota. So when this happened, there was really kind of a a reckoning within the party, and um, a, a group of people who had always wanted to felt that the Democratic Party since 1968 had moved too far to the left, had embraced too many minority constituencies, and they wanted to move it back to the center of American politics, or I would say to the right. And so, um, led by Al Fromm, they began to figure out ways to bring the Democratic Party closer to large corporate funders. And this takes place in the mid-80s, and it's really the, the stirrings and the beginnings of the Democratic Leadership Council. Uh, Meanwhile, Bill Clinton is governor of Arkansas, and he himself goes through a transformation. And his first uh, term as governor, he commuted 40 different death sentences. He ran um, really as a liberal and was liberal in criminal justice issues. But uh, he lost his second election. And after that, his politics were really transformed. It was a lesson that he took to heart. And when he ran for governor again, he ran on a hard Um, anti-crime stance, and really reversed his earlier position. So this kind of political history of Bill Clinton in Arkansas intersects with the national history of the Democratic Party in the 1980s, and a very definitive moment was the defeat of Michael Dukakis in 1988. So Michael Dukakis was um, also a liberal, was opposed to the death penalty at the time, was governor of Massachusetts. And um, he supported, essentially, uh, various types of criminal justice reform. Uh, In 1988, um, uh, a former, uh, an incarcerated felon was released on a work furlough program and assaulted a white woman uh, and her husband. His name was Willie Horton. And this incident was taken up by Lee Atwater, who was George Bush Sr.'s primary campaign advisor, and he created a whole series of these very sensationalistic ads, essentially saying that Michael Dukakis supported this kind of violence. So they linked Michael Dukakis's opposition to the death penalty and his support for criminal justice reform to this historic um, myth, really, of black male violence against white women. So Willie Horton is real, but he's invoked in mythic ways that that resonate deeply with our country's history of 
racial violence and using uh, sexual violence against white women as a rationalization of forms of violence against black men. And George Bush wins um, the election, and many legal scholars have argued that this was the first time that a president was elected entirely on an anti-crime platform. So Bill Clinton watches this happen, and after 88, he gets, becomes much closer to uh, the Democratic Leadership Council. He gets actively involved. He becomes the national chair and does all kinds of outreach. And then uh, when he runs for president in 1992, he um, flies back to Arkansas uh, right before the New Hampshire primary in order to preside over the execution of Willie, Willie, Willie Ray Rector. And Rector was essentially uh, had brain damage. He had shot and killed an officer and then shot himself through the temple, which had destroyed the frontal lobe of his brain. And many people estimated that he had essentially the cognition of a small child. The night before he was executed, journalists went to interview him, and he explained to them that he was studying his dessert for after his execution and that he planned to vote for Bill Clinton in the fall. So the symbolic act of presiding over the execution of the key Ray Rector right before the New Hampshire primary was really Clinton's way of positioning himself in contrast to Dukakis and showing that he was tougher on crime. In general, the Democratic Party outflanked the Republican Party from the right. And I see this as the great legacy of the Clinton, of, of Bill Clinton's presidency, was that on a number of issues, especially welfare reform and criminal justice inside the United States, he appropriated and expanded what historically had been Republican, a Republican platform. So when I was reading your piece, uh, I got to a certain point where I actually teared up and started crying. And I, uh, I'm hoping I do- it doesn't happen again. I was even explaining it to my partner last night, and it, it happened again. So I'm hoping it doesn't happen this time. But you write that at the core of this anger about the shift in the Democratic Party was not just race as an abstraction, which too often functioned as, as a polite euphemism, but rather black people themselves. Another DNC commission studied by Stanley Greenberg, who subsequently became a pollster for Clinton in 1992, cited data from Macomb County, a suburb of Detroit, to make this point even more explicitly, quote, these white Democratic defectors express a profound distaste for blacks, a sentiment that pervades almost everything they think about government and politics. Blacks constitute the explanation for their white defectors' vulnerability and or almost everything that has gone wrong in their lives. Not being black is what constitutes being middle class. Not being black is what makes a neighborhood a decent place to live. This is personally very frightening to me because while I was born in Wayne County in Detroit, I was raised in Macomb County in a town called East Detroit that had a 99% white population directly across 8 Mile Road from predominantly black Detroit. And the racism was incredibly thick and incredibly deep. What explains to you why the DNC would use a focus group, use a study on an area that epitomized white flight that was incredibly racist on how the Democratic Party should move forward. Thank you so much, Tuck, for providing that context. I didn't even know the full context of McCone. Um, that really helps uh, put it in perspective. I think that it had to do with how the Democratic Party understood its base, that in many ways it took the black vote for granted. It saw it as a as party, essentially as a party capture, because there was nowhere for African Americans to go. And so it was, I think, looking back to the, the Democratic Party's historic roots, 
so that the and it, this brings up the true um, vulnerability and paradox of African Americans trying to become politically incorporated into the two-party system in the 1960s, which is that historically the Democratic Party had been regionally divided. So in the South, up through the 1960s, it's the party of white supremacy, the party of one-party one rule, the party of white supremacy in the South. But in the North, it has been the party of urban liberalism, which is the party of particularly uh, immigrant white ethnic immigrant populations and working class populations. So I think in the 1980s, in response to this massive loss by Ronald Reagan, um, you saw a convergence of different kinds of interests. There are corporatist interests that literally want to change the party rules, um, which, as I said, had been altered after the 1968 convention. Um, and this is, I think, important to talk about as we're thinking about today with both the Sanders and the Clinton campaign, is thinking about how reasons why the caucuses are, exist and how the parties are structured. Because in 68, you did have a series of electoral reforms because it was attempting to reckon with the scale of the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and all these burgeoning new movements, the women's movement, gay and lesbian, brown berets, and brown power. So the Democratic Party in the late 60s become more responsive to these constituencies. But by the time you get to the mid-80s, you see that the development of this thing um, that people call the Reagan Democrats. And like you, I grew up in western Pennsylvania in Erie County, about an hour and a half west of Buffalo. And it was a hardcore place for the Reagan Democrats. So these are people that often voted Democratic for the mayor, um, heavily white ethnic populations. But starting in 1980, really begin to vote Republican for presidency and for national elections. So even though we always had Democratic mayor, we were a core place, you know, core region that was supporting the Republican Party on the national level. So I think that this turning to a particular type of both suburban, which is important, many of these suburbs, as in the ones we're talking about in Macomb County, are created by white flight, by white families that leave the city as African-American populations are uh, in-migrating. So there's a flight of people and of capital to the surrounding suburbs. And there's also this flight from the Democratic the historical constituency of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. So to me, this is the political analog for the spatial flight that's going on. You know, it's a, really one of the most horrible things about Macomb County, selecting Macomb County for this study, is one of the bigger cities in Macomb County, mostly created by white flight, is a town called Sterling Heights that when I grew up, everybody just referred to it as Sterling Whites. So the fact that they would actually... Wow use this county as the one uh, to study. Anyway, so how much of the Clintons' popularity then amongst whites is that they are, like Republicans, willing to punish blacks? Well, see, that's, again, you know, there are many paradoxes in this story, and this is another one. You know, one is the attempt of African Americans to integrate into the Democratic Party that has historically been the party of white supremacy. But another is are the Clintons themselves, who I would argue embrace racist and racialized policies, um, but at the same time, they make appeal to African-American elites and they perform a symbolic politics of race. So I think that there is no question that this is why they were so successful in the 1990s, that they were simultaneously trying to reach out to white populations in the era of dog whistle politics, which is a term that was coined by Ian Haney Ian Lopez 
which is a way of talking about the kind of discourses that emerge after the civil rights movement that invoke race without naming it. So some of the classic examples are taxes. Um, saying that you oppose taxes was a symbolic way of saying you oppose the welfare state, which in turn was a symbolic way of saying that you don't want blacks to take things that you have. So taxes is one, crime is another. So the Clintons, very, very, and a, you know, they're very sophisticated politicians, were able to make these kinds of appeals, appeals to fiscal conservatism. Of course, Bill Clinton's great claim to fame of balancing the budget, of course, in a time of economic prosperity, which made that much easier, but being extremely tough on crime. And as one political commentator from New York said, what could be tougher on crime than executing a man with half of a brain? So the death penalty itself became a very powerful form of racial symbolic politics. So in addition to this, um, and you can't, you can't hold the Clintons responsible for people being arrested in state prisons but, and put into state prisons. But of course, I would say that this hardline anti-crime stance was very important for affecting politics at the local level. So not only do we see 600,000 new people being imprisoned under the Clintons, but we also see these very high-profile executions, starting with Ricky Ray Rector in Arkansas. And then ultimately, there are nearly 100 people that are executed uh, with the federal death penalty under Bill Clinton's reign. You write in a depressingly familiar pattern from the Reagan administration, the support of an elite sector of the black political class helped to legitimize the Clinton's hardline anti-crime policies that proved devastating for low-income populations of color. How responsible then were and are uh, elite black political leaders for the crime omnibus bill, welfare reform that had such a negative impact on African-American lives and can be seen as the direct cause of the Black Lives matter movement? Well, I think that, you know, this rightward shift and the shift towards punishment, as historians have talked about it, the punitive turn, um, it entailed large segments of American society. And what I would say is that you have members of the black leadership class that participate in this. One of the surprises that I found in researching the Democratic Leadership Council was that John Lewis joined the DLC in 1990. So uh, when I first started researching it, I didn't, remember, I didn't even know he was a member, much less that he had joined two years prior to Bill Clinton's election. So um, I think that uh, a number of members of the Congressional Black Caucus supported both Reagan's Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986, which is really a definitive piece of legislation for expanding the war on drugs and uh, also adding the death penalty, reasserting the death penalty. Um, what I would say is that black elected officials um, colluded in this uh, turn, but I think it would be a mistake to think that they had the power to drive it. If you look at what's going on in the Democratic Party in the 1980s and this problem of party capture where African-Americans have very limited power within the Democratic Party, that I think that in many ways the Black elected officials helped to legitimize this policy turn, but I wouldn't describe them as the cause of it. Then to you, what explains not only the support Hillary is getting from African Americans, but more importantly, black support for the presidency of Bill Clinton? Is it all uh, economics? That is, because anytime I have someone on the show critical of Clinton-era policies, whether those policies are related to race or not, I'll have some listeners point out that the 1990s were the best time ever for the bottom lines of African Americans. So does that explain African American support for the Clintons? 
You know, I think understanding the, the scale of African-American support for Hillary Clinton and this election, um, it requires analysis. And I think many of us are still figuring out how to interpret it. I think that there are multiple things going on. The first is that when you think about anti-crime policy in the 90s, it is overwhelmingly targeted at poor and working class people. That's important. And while the black and white wealth gap um, between uh, black citizens and white citizens is, is, a 15, is 1 to 15, so your average white family has 15 times, 15 to 20 times the wealth of your average black family, uh, but within racial groups, so intra-racial, inside racial groups, African Americans have a larger class stratification than do white Americans. So I think that's really important because we don't always disaggregate black populations by class. And in the 1990s, I think Bill Clinton, um, it was a period of economic prosperity. It was also a period of the liberalization of credit. And um, it was perceived as a period of real economic access for the black middle class. However, when looked at from the point of view of poor and working class people, and roughly 25% of the African-American population is impoverished. I think those numbers have grown since the 1990s. But these were the people that were really bearing the overwhelming burden of this, these policies of punishment. So I think that first, you know, a lot of people are shut out of the electorate. So 13% of African-American men can't vote. And in certain states like Florida, it's much higher. So one of the things I would say is that some of the populations that are most affected by uh, criminal justice policy do not vote and cannot vote. So in that sense, our electorate is relatively small. It's not reflecting just like for the rest of the American public. It doesn't, the, the size of the electorate doesn't reflect the real composition of the black population. So that's the first thing I would say. The second is that... Um, in the 1990s, we have to contextualize it in terms of what had been happening in American politics. So you have the incorporation of African Americans into the Democratic Party with the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And it's important to note that, um, you know, black people as a whole can't vote until 1965 because the black population in the South was shut out and in the, in the North, black populations could vote, but there are also many forms of disfranchisement, of gerrymandering and, and other barriers to political participation. So after African Americans are incorporated into the Democratic Party, you see this uh, shift towards whites begin to migrate out of the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party in the election uh, first of Richard Nixon in 1968, 1972, and then of Ronald Reagan in 1980 through 1988. And in the 80s, there was such a poisonous politics of anti-black racism. So I think that when Bill Clinton enters the national stage, he's someone from Arkansas, a white Southerner. That choice of him as a white Southerner is not an accident because that was the Democratic Party's attempt to recapture the, the white South. And the only way to do that was by running a, a white Southerner as, a, as their presidential candidate. But it had been such a, a terrible, poisonous politics of race. And, of course, I mentioned the dynamics with Willie Horton in 1988. So I think that when Bill Clinton enters the national stage, he's someone who feels comfortable with black people. He's a southerner. Um, I think the symbolic politics of race are actually quite important. He also is uh, appoints black people to his cabinet. Vernon Jordan is, is said to be his best friend at the time. And 
she goes on Arsenio Hall, puts on black Ray-Bans, and plays the saxophone. And in a country as racially divided as the United States was in the last two decades of the 20th century, this was a, a very important act. And I think that it's easy to forget how bad the 80s were and how bad the backlash was. I think that's the only way to really explain African-Americans embrace of Bill Clinton. And the third is the thing that you mentioned, just the economic prosperity of the 1990s. There was a columnist in Salon that talked about that, that um, her mother was an African-American woman. Her mother had a job and was doing well in the 1990s, and that's all many people wanted. But I would say that we need to analyze this in terms of class. Um, and fast-forwarding to, to today, I'd say that there's a complex relationship that African-Americans have to Hillary Clinton because of Barack Obama. African-Americans have witnessed just the relentless disrespect and racism directed at Obama, and I think that there is a protectiveness to his legacy that um, Hillary Clinton has strategically positioned herself as inseparable from Barack Obama. It is necessary to vote for her in order to support the legacy, support and continue the legacy of Barack Obama. And I think that this has been a very wise political strategy, and I think she knew from the beginning how important the black vote would be. So I would say black support for Hillary Clinton is a combination of the memory and affection for Bill Clinton and also the kind of political machine that Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton have built over the years. If you remember when um, in the 2008 presidential election, John Lewis and many of the senior black Democrats were supporting Hillary Clinton, not Barack Obama. And that reflects their kind of political interdependence with the Clintons, I'd say, and with the patronage networks that exist. So I think that there are multiple reasons why the black population is supporting Hillary. But that said, I think there's still more discussion that needs to be had about the kind of activism that we see today, prison abolition, anti-state violence, anti-state sanction violence, and the Black Lives Matter movement, about trying to figure out how we politicize these issues of mass incarceration so that they matter in American elections. Yeah, and I'd add the kind of focus uh, by the media on celebrity and celebrity acts. I mean, if you think about uh, the leadership of uh, the black elite leadership or you think about the appearance on Arsenio Hall, that's the kind of stuff that the media then puts into the echo chamber and says over and over again. And you also mentioned uh, Ian uh, Haney Lopez's book, Dog Whistle Politics. We had him on the show last year. And so if anybody wants to go back into our archive and check that out as well. Uh, One last question for you, Donna. We have been speaking with historians. Donna Murch. She is the author of the essay, The Clinton's War on Drugs, Why Black Lives Didn't Matter, which can be found in False Choices, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton, edited by Liza Featherstone, who appeared on This Is Hell earlier this year. Donna, one last question for you. And as it is with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. A listener told me this week that if we don't vote for Hillary Clinton for president, we will have under a President Trump, a return to Reaganism. Who will return us more to Reaganism, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Oh, that's a tough question. (laughs) I'm glad you saved that for last. Um, Well, I would say that uh, many of the neoconservatives are supporting Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. One of the things that's been really striking in this election is watching kind of uh, constituencies we think of as core to the Republican Party look to Hillary Clinton as their presidential candidate. So I think that um, 
it matters that Hillary Clinton is receiving so much money from Wall Street. It matters a great deal and that she's embraced Henry Kissinger. And as I talk about in my essay, you know, I think for complex reasons that have to do with gender and legitimacy, Hillary Clinton has constructed a persona based on, in her words, strength and experience. And um, she said of the, of the bombing of Libya and the killing of Muammar Gaddafi, we came, we saw, he died. So I think that Hillary Clinton is incredibly hawkish on foreign policy. Um, a friend of mine feels that she's the, the, the biggest hawk that we have in, in kind of elite politics since John McCain. Um, I think that her, her foreign policy is a deep source of concern for me. So if you think about um, Reagan, and, you know, his aggressive anti-communist stance and interventionist stance, his invasions of Grenada, his support for the Contras in Nicaragua, Hillary Clinton has positioned herself in relationship to Kissinger to continue those types of policies. Now, that said, Donald Trump is talking about expanding the military budget and wants to force Mexico to pay for a separation wall. So we have a horrible choice on international issues. It's hard to tell which one is worse. On domestic, I would say that um, Donald Trump is really, uh, he is an emblem of racism. He represents to me, um, the end of dog whistle politics. He names directly his racist assumption. Um, how this will translate into policy is hard to tell because I think that Donald Trump has so little support among the constituencies in the Republican Party. He has a lot of support from the base, but I think that were he to become president, he would experience a lot of opposition from his own party. So... Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll give them both a tie for continuing Reaganism. I'd say that both of them are supporting uh, incredibly jingoistic, militaristic policies. And Hillary Clinton is receiving more money from Wall Street than is Trump. Donna, it has been a pleasure having you on This Is Hell. We're going to be featuring more contributors to Liza Featherstone's collection on faux feminism. We really appreciate you being on the show with us today. This is a fascinating essay, and people should get Liza Featherstone's uh, edited collection immediately. Thank you so much for being on This Is Hell today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more hell, visit thisishell.com.